today on Porn in the Spare. Although to an outside observer, the situation seems desperate, to many of the men involved, quite the opposite is true. Young Alexander Hamilton records later that in spite of the horrendous conditions, the men were ready, every devil of them, to storm hell's battlements in the night. General Knox, in his after-battle report, said, A profound silence of determination and the crunching of the snow was all that could be heard. Troops, determined, leaned into the snow and hail. This is the conclusion of our two-part special, The Christmas Crossing, featuring commentary in order of appearance by Princeton University professor Dr. Alan Gelzo and Temple University professor Dr. Greg Irwin. And now please enjoy this special Point of the Spear narrative presentation. Washington's Crossing, written by Robert Child, narrated by Fred Kennedy. On the Delaware. The weather continues to deteriorate as the night progresses. The work is miserable, and the attack is beginning to fall hours behind schedule. Colonel Glover storms up and down the bank as the boats embark, yelling, Not good enough! Quicken the pace, men! It's often said that no military plan ever survives the first contact with the enemy. Well, Washington's plan started to come unraveled even before contact. For one thing, the two militia components of his attack plan that were supposed to stage these diversionary attacks on, on the Jersey side of the Delaware never got across the river. So that didn't happen. Then it was the slowdown of getting across the Delaware in the teeth of the storm. It was proceeding on the roads. Nothing seemed to be going according to timetable. And if Washington had gone strictly by that, then he might very easily have abandoned the entire operation. Washington's troops huddle against driving snows. One column begins to break away toward another road in the planned two-pronged attack. Washington records later in his battle report. I formed my detachments into two divisions, one to march by the Lower Ferry Road, the other by the Pennington Road. As the divisions had nearly the same distance to march, I ordered each of them immediately, upon forcing the outguards, to push directly into the town. Washington has no way of knowing now that his are the only troops engaging in the attack. Superiority in numbers is gone, and the final element in his favor, surprise, is slipping away with each passing minute. You know, as Washington is, is approaching Trenton and, and expecting every minute to be discovered by the enemy, which will give them sufficient time uh, to form up and, and meet him in, in a battle formation and, and foil his plan, he bumps into a company of New Jersey militiamen who had been raiding the Hessians and, and his uh, First uh, uh, assumption is, oh my goodness, you know, they, they, they've blown our cover. The enemy is going to know that we're, we're coming. This was unscripted, and Washington was furious about it. One thing which almost undid Washington's plan completely had nothing to do with the Hessians, but it had to do with some of the Virginia militia under Adam Stephen. Adam Stevens' uh, militia units had gotten into a nasty little firefight with some Hessians, and Stephen took it upon himself unilaterally to stage his own retribution raid 
It's almost as though the spirit of the Hatfields and the Coys had taken hold of him, and he was determined to have a swipe back at the Hessians. He crossed the river himself on his own initiative on the 25th, ran into some Hessian outposts, beat some of them up, and in fact, Adam Stevens' unit was on the Jersey side of the Delaware when Washington comes marching down from McConkie's Ferry. Washington, when he sees Stephen and his men, is beside himself. He's convinced that Stephen has sprung the trap. He's given a premature alarm to the Hessians. And Washington and Stephen, who hadn't gotten along terribly well as it was, uh, I mean, the frost definitely settles in that frosty morning between those two. Although to an outside observer, the situation seems desperate, to many of the men involved, quite the opposite is true. Young Alexander Hamilton records later that in spite of the horrendous conditions, the men were ready, every devil of them, to storm hell's battlements in the night. General Knox in his after battle report said, a profound silence of determination and the crunching of the snow was all that could be heard. Troops determined leaned into the snow and hail. With the words of Thomas Paine still ringing in their ears, each man finds the courage to soldier on. To a man, the fact that they were now on the attack lifted all spirits. They would fail or be victorious, but the fight will be their own. Washington's spirit seemed to um, take possession of his army as they're marching uh, toward Trenton and this snow and sleet's coming down, his officers tell him that uh, the men won't be able to fire their weapons. There's water in, in the priming pans of the rifles and the muskets. When Washington's Continentals do weapons check before the attack begins, they find that the storm has wet their powder. What's more, the storm in some cases has frozen their cartridge boxes. And when this is reported to Washington, the question is, should we attack? Washington's reply is, yes, attack. Go in with the bayonet. I think that if the Hessians had been standing out in the middle of the streets with their drums rolling, their flags flying, officers' swords drawn and muskets leveled, ready for Washington, I think he still would have gone in on the attack. There was no turning back at this point. Snow still whirls, but the sky is lightened as dawn grows near. In these woods outside Trenton, Washington readies his men for battle. The men march at a steady pace, all eyes focused forward. The order has been given. Washington looks across at his force, unsheaths his green-dyed, ivory-handled sword. Stunned and momentarily frozen at the sight of the masses of men emerging from the woods, they turn and shout the alarm. Der Fiend! Der Fiend! On the high ground at the edge of town, Knox has his guns loaded and ready. He nods to his men who have their matches lit. Let's wake up the rest of the bastards! Give fire! All 
turns to panic. Hessians in battle dress bolt into the street, only to be shot down after a few strides. Inside his headquarters, Rawl dresses for battle. Exiting the home, Rawl mounts his horse and gallops, sword drawn, toward his troops. Meine tapferen Soldaten, fortschritt! My brave soldiers, forward, he yells. Seventy-five yards away, eyeing the well-dressed German officer, a young Continental raises his musket, leads the galloping Rawl, and pulls the trigger. Rawl falls from his horse, mortally wounded. In a nearby clearing, Hessians try to reform their lines, but Washington's men, muskets leveled, surround them on all sides. The cornered Hessians drop their guns and raise their arms in surrender. I hope you're enjoying this special presentation. The Christmas Crossing is part of a larger audiobook, America's First D-Day, which you can purchase at audible.com, Audible UK, and several other sites. You can find purchase links in this episode's description. The three Hessian regiments suffered 22 killed, 83 seriously wounded, and surrendered something in the order of 896 officers and men. Their unhappy commander, Johann von Rahl, was mortally wounded, shot twice trying to rally his troops. It was a tremendous and humiliating defeat for the Hessian contingent. By contrast, Washington, in his report to Congress, noted that there were only two Americans seriously wounded, two officers, and two privates. No, no killed in action. When Washington meets with Rawl, though, he, he's very considerate. Uh, Rawl asks that his men are well taken care of. And Washington decides, uh, well, even before he met Rawl, he probably decided that was what he was going to do because he not only wanted to win a victory, but he also wanted to place the Patriot cause on the moral high ground. We do not behave like barbarians. We treat our prisoners according to the rules of war. Washington is playing now to the international community because he realizes, like other far-sighted American leaders, if we're going to win, we need foreign help. Rawl, lying mortally wounded and soon to be dead, surrounded by aides, Washington. asks for Washington. Washington observes the courtesy of war reluctantly in paying respects to the dying Rawl. Rawl, with his last breath, asks Washington to see to his men's welfare and treat them with honor. Lord North's government had been riding on such a tide of confidence and with such assurances from Sir William Howe that the military part of the war was just about ready to be wound up, that the attack on Trenton and the battle at Princeton came as a palpable shock in Parliament. It was almost as though North's government had been exposed as the basest form of liars. The unhappy North, of course, had not planned it that way. He had been perfectly sincere in the promises that he'd issued. But at the same time, it made him look like an idiot. 
It made Washington look like a genius. It made America look suddenly very much like a bucket the British had put their foot into. And it dispelled all the confidence that the British had had that their army could not be beaten by this ragtag collection of Americans in their hunting shirts and their long rifles. Washington, with Cadwallader and Ewing's forces still immobilized on the Pennsylvania side of the river, wastes no time in returning his now isolated force back across the Delaware as well. Washington knows he will face a stubborn British counterattack because of his surprise victory. Washington wins his victory at Trenton. And two days afterwards, uh, a bunch of uh, Pennsylvania militiamen, uh, the Pennsylvania Associators under uh, Colonel John Cadwallader, they cross the Delaware because they had missed uh, the first Battle of Trenton and, and they wanted to win some glory. And Washington decides, well, I've got to go back over there to support these fellows and there might be some opportunities. But his army has only been recruited for one year. These men who have gone through hell and finally given America a victory their uh, enlistment is due December 31st, and who's to blame them for saying, I've done my bit, I'm going home, let somebody else risk their necks. Washington begs his, his veteran Continentals to stay six more weeks. Many soldiers feel they have done their duty, achieved victory. Washington orders the Continental soldiers once again loaded into boats, this time during the day to cross to Trenton. Washington is determined to carry the fight, press the offensive, and drive the British back but his men have lost their enthusiasm. They have earned the right to return home, and a long winter looms. Washington has to address the crisis. Troop Formation at Trenton, December 30, 1776 On the next to last day of the year, 1776, Washington has run out of time. The decision to continue is not his alone. If America is to carry on the fight for independence, it will be decided by her people. The fighting men from North Carolina, Virginia, Connecticut, and all the other colonies who come together as Continental soldiers and militia to fight for independence. Without them re-enlisting, the war will be lost. Washington rides his horse up and down the line, his face pained, searching for words. Strong boxes are stacked behind the troops. Finally, he speaks. I ask that any freedom-fighting man who has decided to volunteer to stay on to poise his firelock and step forward. The troops, eyes front, avert Washington's piercing gaze, remain as rigid as stone. Not one man steps forward. Washington reels his horse for effect and again rides the line, imploring with steadfast sincerity. My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected. A few men look into Washington's eyes. But your country is at stake. Your wives, your houses, and all you hold dear. Cornwallis gathers his forces at this very hour across that creek. I realize you have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardship. More men turn and face Washington, relax their posture, listen. Above all, they trust this man. But we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay only one month longer... You will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably never can do under any other circumstances. Washington is done. Spent. He pauses, exhausted, and sits back on his mount as he surveys his army. 
A slight sadness creeps onto his face, as he imagined he is looking at his army for the last time. Silence hangs another moment. Distant winter winds howl through the pines. Finally, one foot takes a step forward. Another foot comes forward. A young man's determined face stares up at Washington. He takes a step toward his commander. If I must die young, I will do it at this man's side. Washington nods back. More and more men step forward. Hands on each other's shoulders, they will not let one another down. The sadness on Washington's face drops away, replaced by pride. He reels his horse and shouts, A ten-dollar bounty for each man that serves another six weeks. A bounty! You have earned it, every last brave man of you. Men smile and continue to step forward. Some will not step forward, but most do, and it becomes clear Washington will have his army. So it was on a windswept parade ground in Trenton, New Jersey, in 1776. America's future is purchased for $10 a head. Something about Washington's words. Somehow eloquence came to his rescue unbidden at that moment when it had to. One of his officers asked him, shall I enroll the men? No, said Washington. Men who would respond this way do not need to be enrolled. From there, the road lay to Princeton and victory. With the second victory at Trenton, turning back Cornwallis's stubborn counterattack on January 2nd, Washington proves once again his army can stand and fight. Pressing even further north, Washington's army, after a daring nighttime march, descends on British forces at Princeton. In Trenton, Cornwallis and his men awake to the sound of cannon fire coming from behind their position. Cornwallis and his army race toward Princeton. However, Washington's rear guard damages the main bridges, and American snipers delay Cornwallis's army. Princeton Battlefield It became a glorious open-field victory by Washington's forces. Even British historians have noted the three battles combined, First and Second Trenton and Princeton, had a devastating impact on the war. In the late 19th century, British historian Sir George Trevelyan writes in his study of the American Revolution, It may be doubted whether so small a number of men ever employed so short a space of time with greater and more lasting effects upon the history of the world. The war will continue five more bloody years, but after Princeton, the British realize they will not prevail. We often think of Washington primarily as a soldier, and true enough, he was at least in professional terms, a soldier, always thought of himself as a soldier. At the end of the Revolutionary War, he resigns his commission as general of the army and goes back to Mount Vernon to become the squire of Mount Vernon again. The idea that a man commanding that much power at the head of a victorious army would voluntarily lay aside the power that could have made him a king in his own right was simply astonishing. The 18th century did not understand that power worked that way. Power was supposed to be something that corrupted the people that held it. Power was supposed to work such charms on you that once you stuck your hands to it, you could never unstick yourself. Power appealed to the basest instincts of human nature and never failed. In Washington's case, it did. 
He turns away from power, walks away from it, rides away from it. When news of this came to the King of England, it is said that George III, when hearing it, exclaimed, if this be true, he is the greatest man of the age. Well, in this case, George III, who was wrong about a lot of things, had that one absolutely right. The bold stroke begun by a determined man in the waiting days of 1776 on the icy banks of the Delaware will become the foundation from which a nation is born and an independent American spirit forged. Great men secured American blessings of liberty in dark times, and it is a legacy to cherish and hold dear. This has been Washington's Crossing, written by Robert Child, narrated by Fred Kennedy. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part special. We plan more of these storytelling specials in 2022. And coming up all next month, we will be highlighting and celebrating the seven black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II with exclusive episodes and special giveaways of my new book, Immortal Valor, the seven black Medal of Honor winners of World War II. Until then, I wish you and your family the happiest of holidays and a healthy and prosperous new year. Thank you for being a part of Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.